Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. How are you? You seem a little subdued. I got to be honest with you. No, I mean, I know. So come on, let's do this. We're here. It's a two-way street. I'm ready. I hope you're ready. Let's go. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we're in verse 11 through 23 this morning, and uh, we are in the final four messages through the gospel of John. We started uh, in January of this little thing we like to call 2021, and we're almost done, and um, I, I feel like I always do when we work through a book of the Bible, I feel a kind of melancholy. I'm going to miss my, uh, my month, uh, my weekly study friend, John. I mean, I can, I can go back to him anytime I want, but there's just something beautiful about working our way through the book, a book. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, I, this text, verses 11 through 23, is, is a bit sort of, um, uh, n- not random, but it's, 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 it isn't readily apparent. Like, how does this apply to the Christian life? And so to help us understand what's going on here post-resurrection, where Jesus is beginning to appear to his disciples, to help us understand this, I want to guide us by asking three questions. And these are the three questions that I want to ask before we read through the text. First is, what are the implications of Jesus' ascension? Now, the ascension is not mentioned in John's gospel. It is implied by this interaction that we're going to read about with Jesus and uh, Mary here in just a moment. But what are the implications of the ascension? This is uh, something that we all know happened, but we don't necessarily often think about the implications or the benefits to the Christian of the ascension. So we're going to look at that. I think it's massively important. Secondly, there's this intriguing thought that we'll see when we get to and when we read is, why does the resurrected glorified Jesus... Remember what we talked about two weeks ago before Pastor Raphael came? We looked at the resurrection of Jesus and the implications of the resurrection and how we will be resurrected if we're in Christ and we'll have glorified bodies and we will be with him forever. But there's this really intriguing, unique aspect of Jesus' resurrected body is that he still has scars. He still bears the scars of his wounds on the cross. So why does Jesus' perfected, resurrected, glorified body still have scars And then the text ends with Jesus appearing to his disciples and breathing on them and saying to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So what what does it mean to receive the Holy Spirit? So there's kind of three sort of seemingly unrelated aspects or uh, questions, but hopefully we can tie them all together when we get into the text. Now here's a summary of the text because we're not going to read it all the way through. I'm going to read it and stop, read it and stop and answer these questions. So I want to summarize this text for you at the beginning. And to give you a kind of handlebars as we approach these three questions. This is right after uh, Peter and John have gone to the tomb and they've run run off to tell their friends. And Mary, then Mary Magdalene, not the mother of Jesus, but Mary goes and she sees the empty tomb. and And she then encounters these two angels. She sees this empty tomb. These two angels speak to her. She's crying because she thinks that Jesus is still dead. 
and then uh, she actually encounters Jesus. Initially, she doesn't recognize him, but she has a conversation with Jesus, and, and we see that interaction here where he talks to her about the ascension, which we're going to delve into. And then Jesus appears to his disciples who were locked in a room, who obviously were in a state of fear and trembling, because they have no idea that Jesus has been raised from the dead at this point. And so they're fearful of what's going to happen to their lives. They're fearful of the Jewish leaders. So they're kind of huddled in their house on this first Sunday of the new covenant when Jesus is alive. And Jesus miraculously appears to them, and he says some things to them. He tells them to actually look at his wounds, and then he breathes on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So that's the kind of flow. Let's look at verse 11. And look at this interaction here between Jesus and Mary. Verse 11, John chapter 20. Before I do that, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us understand. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the gospel of John that we have just been so encouraged by, that I've been so encouraged by over the past almost two years now. Help us as we come down to the end of our study of John. Lord, remind us of this message of John that He writes these things that we would believe. And Lord, I think everyone in this room falls into either one category. We already either do believe or we need to believe in Jesus. And so those that do believe, Lord, would you help our unbelief? Would you strengthen our belief? Would we see Christ afresh? Would it it renew our affections and soften our heart and steal our spines for life in this day? And for those that are not yet believers, Lord, would you, as we've prayed several times already, would you use this passage by your Holy Spirit to give a new heart where a dead heart exists? And would you bring faith where there is no faith? And would you open blind eyes so that anybody that came into this room unbelieving would trust and see and trust in what Jesus has done? And all for your glory and our good, we pray these things. Amen. All right, verse 11, John chapter 20. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. I don't have time to get into this, but there's a fascinating tie between this scene. You might think, well, why are there two angels, one at the head and one at the feet of this this basically tablet where the body of Jesus would lay. Well, many commentators through the centuries think it ties back all the way to the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, where God gave instructions to Moses in Exodus 25, where he was to prepare this place in the Day of Atonement where the priests would sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed lamb. And it was, it was there where the blood was sprinkled in this seat that actually the forgiveness of sins, at least in a temporary old covenant sense, would happen, that, that there's a tie between that because God tells Moses in Exodus in the Old Testament that there would be two cherubim, a heavenly being at the, at the top and the, the, front, the head and the tail of this, this, this seat. And here we see this picture of these angels in a sense to this new covenant expression of this where the dead body of Jesus lay is where forgiveness happened. But I don't have time to get into that. So let's keep going. Verse 13. They said to her, these are the angels speaking, Now woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, now get this, she turned around 
and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly, but don't you wonder why she didn't? What, what, what was it about Jesus' resurrected, glorified state that made Mary not able to recognize him? Was, he, was, he in, was, it, was it the radiance of the glory of God? Well, I don't know, because he seems to appear to the other disciples that we'll get to in a bit, and it doesn't seem to overwhelm them. Was he just so renewed in youthful appearance that he, he was, at least in some sense, unrecognizable to her? Was her grief overwhelming her? We, we don't know, but it's striking that she doesn't fully recognize, at least initially, that it is Jesus. In verse 15, she, Jesus said to her, he's repeating the question of the angels, that's interesting. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Just a little pause there. Another, I, I don't have time to get into this, but again, this is just a wonderful tie in John's symbolism. One thing that, that separates John's gospel from the other three gospels, which are more of a chronological telling. By the way, I've noticed that when I do something in my mind from left to right, I do it like this in my left to right, but it's not left to right for you. So I've got to do it from left to right. So a chronological telling of the story of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do that, sort of a more chronological narrative. Whereas John is wanting to draw out themes and show us symbols that make theological points about Jesus. And one of the things that I think is going on here in Mary mistaking him to be the gardener is that Jesus is in the garden crucified. He's in the garden betrayed. And she mistakes him to be the gardener who is the master gardener, capital G, who is coming to restore, which was lost in the garden back in Genesis chapter 3. But I don't have time to get into that. But just note that. Go deeper in that on your own sometime later on. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. And there's just something about hearing your name spoken by the shepherd that made Mary recognize finally now who Jesus was. Mary, she turned to him and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. This reminds me of that beautiful passage in John chapter 10 where it says that the sheep will know the shepherd's voice. And Mary, when she hears her name called, not just a random question, but her name called, she knows that it's Jesus. Friends, I don't have time to get into this, but Jesus knows your name, doesn't he? Come on, there are no grandchildren in the kingdom of God. There, there are no distant people on the outside. If you are in Christ, you are his. He knows you. He knows everybody's name. Everybody inside and outside of the kingdom of God, everything that he's ever created. He knows everything about us, and he speaks tenderly to Mary here in this moment of grief, and she recognizes him. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, and what's implied here is that Mary maybe lunges or falls down at the feet of Jesus and cling, holds on to his feet. We don't know. We just should, should have to maybe read that there's something going on here where she, she touches him or she clings to him. Jesus said to her, verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. 
But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So what's going on there in verse 17? That's kind of tricky. It's sort of interesting. Jesus, it seems like a, 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 um, a peculiar thing for Jesus to say to her when she finally recognizes him. And he says, whoa, 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 whoa. no, no, don't, 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 don't focus. I think this is what Jesus is saying here because some people have been tripped up by the fact, and we're going to get to this next week, when he uh, talks to Thomas, doubting Thomas, and he actually tells Thomas to put his finger in his wounds. So over the centuries, people, students of the Bible, Christians, have been perplexed by the fact that Jesus would tell Mary not to touch him, whereas he tells here in just moments later, next at the end of John chapter 20, he tells Thomas to touch him. So what's going on there? Well, I think what's going on here, again, is John is making a theological point. He's not saying, like, Mary, get away from me, don't touch me. He's saying, don't focus on my physical presence right now because I'm not going to be here for much longer. The, the work of Christ is still yet not fully complete. He's going to ascend to the Father, which is exactly what he told his disciples to do in the final dinner, the, final, the last supper, the, uh, the, the final discourse that we spent three chapters, John chapter 14, 15, 16. He's going now to ascend to the Father. It hasn't yet happened. And so I think what Jesus is saying here, he's not putting Mary off, like, don't touch me, woman. He's saying to her, don't focus on the fact that I'm here. Don't get wrapped up. This isn't the final work. It's not yet fully done. Go tell my brothers and your brothers that I'm ascending to the the Father. And so then, here's the question I want us to think about. Because although John does not record the ascension, that's only recorded in Luke and then at the beginning of Acts, Here we have this picture of the ascension, which is often confessed. We believe it. We know it happens. We read about it, but we don't understand the implications of it. So I want us to think about what are the implications of the ascension? Not just that Jesus has lived a perfect life. And don't we talk about that a lot? Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death on the cross. He bore the sins of the Father for us in our place. He rose again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And oftentimes we just kind of stop there. Praise God. But there's more to it. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. Read about, let me read to you about in Acts chapter 1 where we actually see this happen in scriptures. So Jesus has been teaching them about the kingdom, about the giving of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 verse 9. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Put yourself in the scene. Imagine how amazing, spectacular this would have been to see this. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, by the way, this is our great hope that Jesus is coming back. Amen. But let me give you just four implications of his ascension. Certainly there are more, but here's just four. One, it is a picture that our redemption is complete. He is seated at the right hand of God, and he has nothing left to do to actually secure 
the salvation of his people. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 10. And you know what? You should warm up to Hebrews because I think Hebrews might be on the calendar in 2023. Just a thought. Like this he- Hebrews, come on now. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. A tireless job. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, listen to this, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So Jesus is ascended. Where is he? He's at the right hand of God, and he's seated. He's not up doing stuff to accomplish anything in a redemptive sin because it has already been done. And let me just read verse 14. You know verse 14 is one of my favorite in the whole Bible because it's amazing. For by a single offering, meaning his perfect sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection defeat over the grave, for by a single offering he has perfected, past tense, For all time, those who are being sanctified, present tense. So there's a mind teaser for you there. Those who are already perfected in Christ are in the process of being sanctified. Why do people that have already been perfected need to be sanctified? Because that is God's plan of redemption to accomplish something in and outside of time and to actually make it a reality in time. And so here we are, Jesus seated at the right hand of God. Redemption is complete. Nothing more can be done to satisfy the glory of God. Jesus has done it all. There's no works that we can do. There's there's no amount of good deeds that we can do to, to make ourselves right with God. Jesus has done it. He satisfied the law. He satisfied God's holiness on our behalf. So he's seated at the right hand of God. And what's he doing seated there at the right hand of God? Brings us to the second implication of the ascension. This is gloriously encouraging. He daily intercedes for us. Think about this. The Son is praying to the Father for the things that He has promised to bring about your future final perseverance and glorification. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 20. There's Hebrews again. It keeps popping up. Hebrews 7. Verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Listen to this. Since he, this is speaking of the Son, speaking of Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is making intercession for you at the right hand of God right now if you're a Christian. Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things, verse 31? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring, listen to the logic of Paul, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And by the way, a little bit earlier on in Romans chapter 8, it says that the Spirit 
is interceding for us with groans that we can't even utter. It's getting into the deep recesses of our heart that we don't even understand. The Spirit is praying for us. The Son is praying for us to the Father. So the Trinity is, is working on behalf of you if you're in Christ right now. So, so no, no, no. I mean, okay, like theology can be 30,000 feet in the air. Like, okay, praise God. I mean, who's going to say, ah, oh, whatever to that? I mean, you're going to, like, if, if, praise God, right? Praise God. But how does that help you on a Tuesday when you're battling some temptation? You have, this is how this works here. You've got to, so, and this is why opening your Bible and being with the saints and, and exposing yourself to the truth of God, this is how it works. There's no shortcut. You see this, you picture this, you know this, you believe this, and you ask God to make you aware of this in your moment of weakness. And then in that moment of trial, in that moment of doubt, in that moment of temptation, you remember what's happening in heaven for you in that moment. And it gives you strength. And it empowers you, it emboldens you so that you can flee or resist or stand up against that thing. So he's daily interceding for us. He also, let me hurry on, verse number three, he goes to a pl- prepare a place for us. So Jesus has told his disciples in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, who I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus is, he's working, he's preparing heaven for those that are his, so that when he comes back, in like manner that he ascended, he may have it ready for us. And then finally, fourthly, he rules. What's the implications of the ascension? He rules and reigns over all things. And this may be a difficult concept for us to understand because our world is a chaotic place, but it's true. He rules and reigns over all things. Listen, Jacob read it this morning for our call to worship. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Speaking of the resurrected King Jesus, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, meaning Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, meaning Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. So he's coming, he's reigning, he'll bring all of his people home with him. We will be resurrected. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Listen to verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So he is currently reigning in heaven now, and the last enemy, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So how does he do this? How is, in what sense is Jesus reigning in heaven? Well, clearly, he can do whatever he pleases. And we do, let's admit that we often struggle to realize this truth because clearly evil and wickedness and sin and decay is still part of our existence. But it is part of God's glorious, good, mysterious providence to allow these things to happen, to hold back the second coming of Jesus 
to bring in the full measure of all of his people from every tribe and tongue. And even, even still, God, Jesus is using every wicked thing, every evil thing to somehow work out according to his plan. And then on a day, that glorious day, he will come again and finally and fully vanquish all evil and sin. And he is presently in his ascended kingly state, ruling and reigning over all things. That's the implications of the ascension, just four implications. Well, let's keep going. So he's ascended, and now he tells Mary to go tell the disciples in verse 19. I want us to think about this question. Here's this interaction in the next two verses. What's going on with Jesus still having scars in his hands if he's glorified and resurrected? So verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Okay, just note the subtle miracle here. The doors were locked. So what's going on? Well, one of two things is happening, and the Bible doesn't tell us so both of these are speculation, but I think one of them had to happen. Either Jesus walked through the wall, maybe. Some people in the history of the church have believed that. The text doesn't say that, but certainly it's possible. Or he miraculously unlocked the door and let himself in. Again, the text doesn't say that. We don't know. But I think it's subtly there that telling us that the doors were locked and that there's no barrier of Jesus to get to his people, and he walks in the room and he says, peace be with you. But what's going on? Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So it doesn't say that the scars are still there, but he does say that to Thomas in the text that we'll look at next week. And so what's going on? Why would a resurrected, glorified Jesus still have scars, wounds that are healed over, clearly, that bear his work on the cross. Because remember two weeks ago, we made the big point about how we will be glorified. We will be without defection, without sin, without any marring in our bodies. We will be perfect like Jesus forever. But yet, Jesus still has scars. What's going on there? Why is that? I think the answer is that they serve as an eternal reminder and reason for praise of his suffering and satisfaction for sin. They serve as an eternal reminder and reason for praise of his suffering and satisfaction for sin. They are, a, a sense, a kind of invoice that says to the heavenly hosts, to wicked forces of evil, and to us in eternity, sin has been paid in full. Uh, just to kind of illustrate this to you, I remember several years ago, uh, I think we got some... I think we got a new HVAC compressor. Our compressor went out, and I, we got a new one, bought it, paid for the work to be done, and um, I paid for it. I think this was back in the, I, I'm old enough to remember when you actually wrote, wrote checks. I mean, it's a fascinating thing, you young people. There's actually these little pieces of paper, and you would write down the amount that you owed to people. You actually give it to them, and then they would physically take it to this place called a bank, and then you'd, they'd deposit. Anyway, I wrote a check for this air conditioning work that we had done. And, you know, the, the, the repairman did his job. Our, our air started working again. We went on our happy, merry way, and everything was fine. 
And uh, they uh, apparently did not cash the check. And, um, and it, like a week, a couple months later, um, I, I, they didn't think they, they did on my, my ledger had cashed the check, so everything was fine for me. But a couple months later, I get a call from some collections agency saying, excuse me, sir, Mr. Evangelista, you owe, uh, you owe, you know, $2,000. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the repo man, and I'm, I'm coming to get you. You know, <laughs> you know that, that's not a good phone call when you're just sitting your mind in your own business and somebody sent you to collections, right? I'm like, what? Uh, what are you talking about? I, I paid for this, and, and, you know, you just, your hearts, you just feel offended. Like, wait a minute, wait, I paid for this. And I got off the phone, and I went to my computer. I printed out the bank site, you know, the bank, the sheet that showed where we paid. And I was, man, I found it. And there was just something in me that I called the guy back, and I said, here it is. I blacked out every line. I highlighted it in yellow. I wrote in red to the side, paid in full, boom. And I went to the local company because it wasn't just enough to tell the repo man. I wanted to let these people know that I might bump into a Publix, that I'm good for my bills. You know what I'm talking about? And so I, I printed that sheet out. I blacked out every other thing that was on there so they couldn't see all the other stuff that we were buying. And I highlighted in yellow. And I wrote in red on the side of that ledger, paid in full. In fact, I thought about going to Office Depot and getting one of those stamps in red and just stamping all over the sheet, paid in full. I pay my bills. And I physically, I physically, because I was so troubled by this fact that I might owe something and I'd been sent to collections, not only did I tell the collections company, somebody in Des Moines, Iowa, wherever they were, I took it to the local office here, and I said, I just want you guys to know. Here it is. It says, you, got, you cashed my check about two days after, and so the, the problem is on your record. I, didn't, I wasn't talking like this, but I just let them know. Paid in full. Don't come at me, man. <laughs> Friends, I think that's how Jesus' scars serve us in heaven. Our enemy wants to accuse us. Man, we're, we're, you're saved. You've been saved. You're, you're safe in the hands of God. And the enemy wants to accuse us. And we look to the scars of Jesus in heaven, and it says, paid in full. It's a reminder to the heavenly hosts, to the spiritual forces of wickedness, and to our own souls for eternity, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's paid in full. It's done. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about this verse. I love this. It's been a while since we read from Uncle Chuck. He says that they serve, the, the scars of Jesus serve as royal attire. It's Jesus' royal attire in heaven. Listen to Spurgeon. He says, Beloved, speaking of his scars and the wound in his side and on his feet, Beloved, these are to Jesus what they are to us. They are his ornaments, his royal jewels, his fair array. He does not care for the splendor and pomp of kings. The thorny crown is his diadem, a diadem such as no monarch ever wore. He never seems so lovely as when we see him buffeted of men for our sakes, enduring all manner of grief, bearing our iniquities, and carrying our sorrows. Jesus Christ finds such beauties in his wounds that he will not renounce them. 
He will wear the court dress in which he wooed our souls, and he will wear the royal robe of his atonement throughout eternity. Praise God. Think about that. Jesus right now is wearing his scars in heaven for you as a reminder of his sacrifice for our sins. Praise God. So let's finish up. Third question then, what does it mean to receive the Holy Spirit? These last few verses are tricky. We need to think about them. So Jesus is in the room. They've been confirmed. They know who he is by his scars. And Jesus, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So the question number three, the final question, we end on this, is what does it mean to receive the Holy Spirit? Now there's been a fair amount of discussion uh, through the ages about verse 22. What's going on in verse 22 when Jesus breathes on them, these disciples, in the room, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit? Two questions kind of come from this passage that people have wrestled with for centuries. One, what, what, what did the breathing on Jesus of the disciples of breathing by Jesus on the disciples actually do for them? Was it the moment of their salvation, or what's going on? Was it a kind of like mini Pentecost in, in just this smaller group? And two, the second question is, how does this giving, this receiving of the Spirit in this smaller group right after the resurrection, how does that, what does that have to do or relate to the day of Pentecost in a few weeks after Jesus has ascended when the Holy Spirit falls on the New Testament church and the church is birthed? Well, I think to answer, there's a lot we could say on this. In fact, much ink has been spilt over verse 22, and I don't want to overly complexify it or confuse you, but let's just remember John's purpose. John is writing so that we might believe in Jesus, and he's not writing concisely or chronologically. He's more interested in making theological points about Jesus. And I think what's going on here at at this point in verse 22 is that John is summarizing the work and theological significance of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And so in order to understand what's going on in the receiving, the giving of the Spirit of Jesus to the disciples, I think we need to tie it into the first part of our text, the ascension of Jesus. Because... All through that upper room discourse that we read about a few chapters ago, the night that Jesus was betrayed, the Last Supper, basically chapters 14, 15, and 16, over and over and over again, Jesus tells his disciples that I am going to the Father. In other words, I'm ascending. I'm going away. I'm going to the Father. But I am giving you a Holy, the Holy Spirit to be your helper, to be your guide. Let me read to you John 14, just a prime your memory. John 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so what Jesus is saying here in John 14, and I think then 
John is summarizing for us here in our text in verse 22 is that the giving of the Holy Spirit by Jesus, this promise that he made to his disciples just a few nights before, the giving of the Holy Spirit is going to come in conjunction with the ascension of Jesus. And so I think what hap- is happening in verse 22 is that although these words happened, they're historically true, they are symbolic of the giving of the Holy Spirit in a broader sense at the day of Pentecost. And John is making the point that after Jesus ascends, he gives the Holy Spirit to his people. And so I think what it means to receive the Holy Spirit is not merely some second experience of grace, but it's to be born again, to be a Christian. Jesus is giving his spirit, the church is birthed, the heart is renewed, a person goes from death to life, and they are in Christ. Christ, the spirit of Christ is in them, they are in him. This, we're at the kind of, the, we're at the, the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant, and Jesus is foreshadowing the giving, the inaugurating, if you will, of the new kingship, the new covenant of his work, and he's telling them, he's giving them the Holy Spirit. And he gives it to them with a mission, because if verse 22 isn't tricky enough, then we need to get into verse 23, and if enough ink has been spilt on verse 22, even more has been spilt on verse 23. He says this really interesting thing. Now, right after he's saying the Holy Spirit is yours, in conjunction with my ascension, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them, and if you withhold, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What's going on there? Is he making us the ones who determine the forgiveness of sins? Is he making the disciples the ones who determine the forgiveness of sins? Well, no, that can't be. In fact, by the way, if you grew up in Catholic circles, uh, this is where our Catholic friends, uh, I think, get, it get the gospel, in. they do in many instances, but this is one sense where I think they very wrongly interpret this text. And this, is, this is verse is part of the reason why Catholics would go to confessionals with their priest and actually wrongly and sadly believe that a priest in a little box behind a screen can somehow absolve you actually in a spiritual sense of your guilt because of verses like this that I think they misunderstand where it's actually the priest offering forgiveness. Friends, that's not the case. If this were the only verse in the Bible about how forgiveness comes to us, then we might make that conclusion. But friends, we have a whole host of other Bible verses that says it's only God that can forgive sins. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So what is Jesus saying here? I think Jesus is saying here essentially what he has said to his disciples in Matthews chapter 16 and 18 where he says to them, and we won't take the time to read it, he says to you that I am giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever whatever door you open on earth is opened in heaven. And whatever door you close on earth is closed in heaven. Essentially what Jesus is saying is, is that you as a local church have such an authority and such an important role that you are in a sense my representatives on earth And the gospel that you give, that's the means by which people will believe and have their sins forgiven. So give the gospel. 
and you as my representatives on earth live with each other in such a way that you become the channel through which the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God actually flows out of us to one another. So he's not saying that we actually now have power to forgive sins, but he's saying that we should live together in such an intentional, biblically oriented way and take it so seriously that our life together and the way we love one another, merciful with one another, and interact with one another, bear with one another, actually becomes a mediating grace through which we recognize and affirm that yes, the Lord loves me and the Lord has forgiven me because I know my brothers and sisters are telling me it's true. Do you see that? Friends, that, that verse magnifies the importance of Christian community in the local church. That we would live together in this way. Look, only Jesus can forgive my sins. But there's something about when we're racked with guilt and shame and condemnation and the devil is beating at our door when we're in Christian community and I sit down with a brother and he looks me in the face and he says, no matter what, Jesus loves you. Turn from your sins and trust in him and you will be forgiven afresh. It's not that brother that's actually forgiving me. It's Jesus working through his mouth to assure me of his gospel grace afresh for a new day. The Lord's mercies are new every morning, and they come to us through the scriptures and through the scriptures as we bear witness to them and speak them to one another. And that's, I think, what Jesus is saying here. So he's saying to his disciples, he's giving us an incredible responsibility. He's saying... You, you have my Holy Spirit. I've made you new. Now be my vice regents, my representatives on earth. And I send you, I send you out into the world to be these type of people, to be this type of church that mediates this grace to an onlooking world and to one another so that through you I will build my church. So in summary, I end with this. I think what's going on in this text is that Jesus' work saves us. He dies a sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. He defeats death, sin, and the grave in his resurrection. He ascends to heaven where he is seated. Redemption is finished. He makes us alive by sending the Spirit. He gives us a new heart. He daily intercedes for us. He rules and reigns over all things. And he gives the church a mission to be the people of God, confirming his grace to one another, confirming his gospel forgiveness to one another, guarding it, and then giving it away to the world as we preach the gospel. I think that's what's going on in this text. Oh, may we see it, and may we be humbled by it and changed by it. Well, now we have the privilege, as I pray, to see two Crosspoint members be baptized, a husband and wife brought here by the United States Army, and we will see a testimony, we'll hear testimonies of this gospel in their lives. Friends, may it stir our affections, may it make us love Jesus more, may it make us people that knows that Jesus is praying for us even now, may it make us believe that the Holy Spirit is ours, 
And as we hear the testimony of God's grace, may we see afresh the scars of Jesus that are still on his hands today as a real human in heaven. That's a glorious mystery. And he is wearing his scars for all eternity as a witness of our redemption forever and ever. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. As we see this this baptism of this couple, this husband and wife that you have worked so wonderfully in, Lord, may it put steel in our spines. May it cause us to, to, to be joyfully thankful for your grace in their lives. And may we see the ascended Jesus, the scarred, ascended, spirit-giving Jesus. And may Christians be strengthened by it, and may any unbelievers in this room be convicted by it and turn from themselves and trust in Jesus today. In his name I pray, amen.